Father, it's, um, it's a bit overwhelming. Father, in light of the circumstances to be able to gather again in this room, even with limited freedoms, to be able to lift the name of Jesus Christ in worship, to be able to do it together is an, an awesome thing. And God, I pray that above all else, we would be growing in our appreciation for these times when we can be together, to not to take it for granted at all. And we thank you, God, that there's a very tangible sense of your spirit here. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to God that we're, we're bound together in this way. We're not bound together by bricks and mortar. We're bound together by the Spirit of God. Your church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, it, it doesn't matter in a sense that we're here or in a living room somewhere or a car or an office. Father, we are bound together. We are knit together by the Holy Spirit. And I thank you that your power can be sensed in all these places where your church is scattered. But for the privilege of being able to be in this room again, Father, I'm grateful. And I pray, God, that you would work in an extraordinary way in these moments as we get your word open. Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, press these truths into our hearts and into our minds. You would do what only you can do to change us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this, these things in his strong name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Good to, really good to see you again um, after um, two months again of a second lockdown and preaching to an empty room gets pretty uh, tired uh, pretty quickly. And so um, great, 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 great. How many greats? So great to have you in the room. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> And uh, also thank you to all those who are watching on the live stream, those who will watch the on-demand uh, this week. Uh, we're grateful for all the ways the Lord uh, binds us together as we just prayed. And, uh, and so uh, let's grab our Bibles and let's uh, turn to uh, Romans. We're continuing on in our series, getting very, very close to the end of it. Uh, now we'll be in Romans 8, uh, just six verses, uh, Romans 8, 12 uh, to 17. And, and the theme is adoption. And I think one of the most beautiful uh, moves that a person or a couple or a family can make um, is to adopt a child. Uh, the welcoming of a little boy or girl into one's home and life uh, delivers obviously immeasurable benefits to the child, but also to the family. And, um, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there are benefits for society as a whole. It's a good thing that adoption exists. Amen. It's a good thing for our society as a whole. And um, it's among, as I've observed it in those who have adopted or been adopted, it's one of the most profound expressions of love that we will ever see and for those who have been a part of it will ever experience. And as I said, it's adoption that comes into full focus as we look at Romans chapter 8. And uh, this facet of the gospel is that the, uh, the gospel is adoption. The gospel is adoption. 
a God adopting you and me into His uh, own family. And whether you've thought about it in these terms or not, um, our sin, as human beings, our sin alienated us from our natural family and uh, made us into spiritual orphans. And grasping that is essential to understanding how we ought to be relating to our God today, understanding this particular facet of the gospel in our lives. And so, um, we're going to be asking um, in this message, we're going to be asking the question, what does it look like when I'm adopted into God's family? That's an important question for us to ask, and we're going to see the answer in these verses we're going to look at. Romans 8, uh, 12 to 17. Let me read this, and we'll get right at it. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. All right, when I'm adopted into God's family, you see that at the top of your notes at hvc.info. When I'm adopted into God's family, first, I owe nothing to my former self. I owe nothing to my former self. There is entirely too much agonizing by people, too much agonizing over what's done, too much angst over what um, did or did not happen, what I did or did not do, too much paralysis over past failures. And rare is the person who has no regrets. I mean, count yourself among the vast array of human beings living on the planet today who have things in their past that they wish were not there. I mean, I'm not going to get a show of hands, okay? But, but, but safe to say, almost everyone is going to raise their hand and go, I wish that weren't in my past. Wish I hadn't done that. Wish that hadn't happened to me or that I had not done that to someone else. So we're all, for the most part, we could just agree we're all in the same boat. So why dwell on these things? If this is the human condition, that most of us have things in our past that we wish were not there, why dwell on these things? They can't be changed, and they shouldn't affect your present, and they shouldn't affect your future. Now that, just that little chunk right there, what a wonderful little self-help talk, talk that is, isn't it? You can go on the internet and find all kinds of little quotes that would help reinforce this, put the past in the past and just live for the future. You can go on Amazon and buy all kinds of self-help books that would say the exact same thing. This is a human condition. It's universal to all of us. But here's the thing. If that is true for every human being, here's the truth we need to hear. If that's true for every human being, that is especially true for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. If we're Christians, more than any other human being, if we're Christians, we ought to put our past in the past and never bring it up again. I mean, the, the question I want to ask if you're struggling with that, the question is, do you believe your theology or not, Christian? 
Do you believe in what Jesus Christ did for you? That it is a finished, we talk about the work of Christ on the cross as being a finished work. The finished work of Christ. Jesus Christ doing what you could never do for yourself. On the cross, you remember these, that powerful three-word phrase, he cried out from the cross, it is, what did he say? It's finished. It is finished. It's an accounting term. It's a business term. He literally said, it's paid in full. Think about that song lyric, Jesus paid it all. Jesus erased the sin debt that you owed to God. Jesus paid it all. Not not Jesus paid it in part. Not Jesus paid some. Jesus paid it all. And when you start to think about what He did for us, He erased all of our sins. I mean, this is an event that happened in history 2,000 years ago, an event where Jesus on a Friday was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. His blood was shed. He gave up His life. He gave up His life for you and me to erase the sin debt. And He did that 2,000 years ago, not just for the sins that you've committed up till today, Sometimes when we, we, you know, on that moment when we're converted, when we become followers of Christ, it's very easy for us to say, you know what, on this particular day, I prayed, I received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of my life, and He forgave all my sins. And when we think about that, we're thinking in the moment, all the sins I've already committed. The reality is, if you didn't already know this, but at that moment of conversion, He also died and forgave you for all the sins you're going to commit. That's awesome. It is finished. It's paid in full. Jesus paid it all. Here's what Paul says, with with that established, that understanding of what Jesus has done for us, verse 12, so then brothers, that's a generic term, sisters included, so then brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Okay? I owe nothing to my former self. That's been paid. We ought not be consumed with or burdened by our old life. Verse 13, he continues, For if, if you live according to the flesh, if you're still consumed by your past, if you're still living according to the patterns of your past, if it's still plaguing you to this day, notice what he says in verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you're going to die. I mean, if you're wrapped up in any way by your past, by your former self, if you have some allegiance still to your flesh, you are demonstrating a lack of genuine faith in Christ. That's the only conclusion we can come to because he says, if this is the way you're living, you're going to die. But, verse 13 continues, but... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the evidence of genuine saving faith in Christ is the active desire powered by the Holy Spirit who indwells you to eradicate sin from your life. I'm going to say that again. The evidence of genuine saving faith in Christ is the active desire powered by the indwelling Holy Spirit to eradicate sin from your life. 
And it starts with an understanding that you owe nothing to your former self. Leave it, leave it in the past. Understand, yes, there's still going to be a struggle with remnants of sin in my life. We talked about that in Romans 7. But I'm not controlled by the sin nature. I'm not controlled by the former self. Put that behind me. And in fact, not only have I put it behind me, secondly, notice this, I, I embrace my new identity. I embrace my new identity. Here's a powerful statement of belonging and acceptance in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, all who are saved, all who have the Spirit of God residing in them, all who have the Spirit of God working in their lives, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters or children of God. In other words, they're in the family. They belong to Him. This is a matter of identity. And, and you know, if you hear me, have heard me preach over the course of this Roman series or even over the past several years, you just see how many times we come back to this issue of identity because it's so critical and because it's right in the text as we study it. That if only we could truly understand who we are in Christ, we're going to solve a lot of the issues that are going on in our lives. We have to lock down this matter of identity. It's a critical truth that we have to embrace if we're to become all that God intends for us to become on this side of eternity. We have to understand that our, our base identity as a human being is that we are created. We are created in the image of God. The image of God in us has been marred by sin. We have a sin nature in us and, and that we need a Savior to save us from that sin nature. That's your core identity. That's the core identity of every person in this room. We have to lock that in. Because Christian, if you forget or you neglect your true identity, it's not going to go a good place, and you're never going to enjoy the benefits of adoption. Now listen, if you're a newer believer, and it's just that you haven't quite caught on to this yet, that's a whole different issue. But if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, you know the Word of God, um, you know, after years of hearing it taught to you, if you're forgetting this or you're neglecting your identity in any way, that's a problem. You won't be enjoying, again, the benefits of adoption that God is offering to you of, of being in His family. Imagine, imagine being an orphan, and, and that's truly what we are before Christ. We're, we're spiritual orphans, but imagine being an orphan to extend this metaphor, and, and you're adopted, and you're given this new family name, and you're welcomed into a home, and you're given a room of your own, and, and you have clothes in the closet, and you're invited to sit at the dinner table and to enjoy a meal with the family. You're part of the family. Both mom and dad show you unconditional love. The siblings welcome you in. You're genuinely part of this new family. And having received all of those benefits and all of those blessings and this new identity that has been stamped on you, you decide. I don't want to live in that house. I don't want to sleep in that bed. I'm, I don't want to eat at their table. I'm not going to take their name. And honestly, how, how foolish would that be? I get the imperfection of the illustration. It may actually play out that way in some human examples, but when you understand that it's God who's offering to adopt you, that there will be no imperfection, that the offer is genuine and incredible. Why would we ever neglect the thing that has been given to us? Why would we ever forget who we are? 
God's making the offer. The benefits are beyond anything that this world would ever offer us. To reject it seems entirely ridiculous. And we've talked a lot in the past several weeks of the struggle of the gospel, that that too, that the, the, the fact that the gospel is a struggle is part of it. The struggle to live the gospel out in a world that is at war with us, with our own flesh that wars against us. That struggle becomes infinitely more difficult. Why would we want to make the struggle harder than it is? I mean, there's no one in this room who thinks that living the Christian life is easy, correct? Why would we make the struggle more difficult than it already is by not taking advantage of all that God is providing for us as His adopted sons and daughters? And a big part of that right now is the church. I mean, we're waiting to get to that heavenly home, okay? We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but we're waiting to get there. But until we get there, this is like a a little taste of the thing that God is going to give to us. It's a micro-expression of the one true family of God. And like all families, it's imperfect and it has to be worked at. We, we like every other family, the church is a family. We, like every other family, the, the family of God is this big universal family. But like every family, it has weird uncles. It has strange cousins it has screw-ups, it has lures and losers and difficult people, like any family does. We, we've talked about ourselves before as being a mob of misfits, haven't we? And that's what we are. That's what the church is. It's imperfect. It has to be worked at. But if your identity is as a son or daughter of God, then the Father's desire is for you to be involved in this mob of misfits. This, this dysfunctional family that we call the church, to be in community, to do life together with all those, to use the wording of the verse here, to, to, to do life with all those who are also led by the Spirit of God and who are also the sons and daughters of God. We need this. Maybe, maybe in the last year we've needed this more than we ever have in our entire life. because it's been such a challenging time. Maybe it's getting us to even rethink and to dig deeper and to to be super intentional about this part of our lives, of being part of the family of God. We have to be more intentional about it. Maybe before the current circumstances, you could kind of go through the motions a little bit. You can't do that now. And the thing about the illustration we're using here about adoption is adoption is one of the most intentional things anyone could ever do. You have to think it through and make a decision. And when we talk about being part of the family of God, it takes intentionality. When we talk about being involved in the church and pressing in, it takes an intentional decision on our part to do it. And so ask yourself, is my level of engagement with the church consistent with my identity as a child of God? All right, let's move on to the next one. When I'm adopted into God's family, I fear no judgment for my sin. 
say, I feel like we're correcting a lot of theology here this morning because when I'm adopted in, into God's family, um, I fear no judgment for my sin, but I, I think sadly and wrongly there are Christians, many Christians, who still assume that there's a judgment for sin at the end of the age. That somehow, even though I'm a Christian, I'm still going to have to stand before God. In some respect, I'm still going to have to account for the things that I've done, the sins that I've committed, that somehow God is keeping track of these things still. And when I stand before Him, it's going to be kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 those residual sins. Let's just have a conversation about those. And that somehow God will mete out some kind of in-the-moment punishment that'll make up for it, and then I'll get my entrance into heaven. Like, I just want to tell you, no part of the Bible ever speaks about anything like that. And it flies in the face of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and again, if you think that in any way that you're going to have to stand before God, if you're a Christian and you have to stand before God at all for any of your sins, I just want to ask you respectfully, I just want to ask you a question. What do you think Jesus died for? Why is it that you think that you could stand before God and account for any of it? No, no part of that is accurate. The fear, notice here, the fear of judgment has been 100% removed for those who are in Christ. The fear of judgment removed. Verse 15, for you did not receive, he's talking to Christians in Rome, for you, Christian, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Before you were a Christian, for sure, you should be afraid of judgment. Every non-Christian should be living in fear. I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying they should be living in fear of judgment because they are actually going to face a judgment for sin, and they will actually have to give an account for their own sin, which they will be unable to do. But you, Christian... You shouldn't be falling back into any fear of judgment. Paul's been using this slavery metaphor throughout the letter. It stands in contrast here against the adoption metaphor. One speaks to belonging, the other, uh, one speaks to belonging to God's family, the other uh, ownership by sin. And God is saying, you're not owned by sin anymore. That's done. That's paid for. Now you belong to God. There's no fear of judgment at all. So you can't, you can't help but, when you're studying a passage, you're thinking about judgment, you can't help but think about the book of Revelation, am I right? You know, you, you think about the, the book of Revelation because that's where you get these visions, and the Apostle John had this vision of the throne room of God in, in chapter 12 of Revelation, and, and he recounts uh, that he saw Satan, Revelation 12.10, who accuses our brothers and sisters day and night before our God. This is, this is Satan's whole play. Okay. Satan stands before God accusing you. Okay, that's, that's, the only, that's the only thing he has. In fact, we have a great narrative picture of this in the book of Job. Job chapter 2, Satan is in front of God and he's accusing Job. There's no way that guy's as good as he looks. And he's only that way because, of, you know, and the whole conversation goes on and the whole story is told and everything happens to Job. So this is what Satan's doing, but God's having none of it from Satan. Okay, He's not having anything from him. Uh, he cannot accuse us, not because we've done something good, not because of any merit that we have in ourselves, but because Jesus did something 
Now you have, to, you have to look at the whole verse. In fact, I would just say, just go to Revelation and read chapter 12 when you get home. But Revelation 12, 10, and I heard a loud voice, this is John speaking, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He's been thrown down. He's standing in front of God and God just threw him down. Done with him. I'm not hearing any more of your accusations. You have nothing more to say to me about those who have Christ. If you have that new identity as a son or daughter of God, then your sins, listen, your sins, past sins, future sins, will never be brought against you again because there will be no accuser because he's been thrown down. To believe anything else is to negate the effects of the cross. Further, when I'm adopted into God's family, see this in your notes next, I enjoy an intimate relationship with my Father. Now, it's always... um, it's always a bit challenging, and it's coming up in the text here, but it's always a bit challenging to talk about fatherhood, the fatherhood of God, because I get that not everyone appreciates the father image, and maybe that's because your earthly father was a chump, or he was abusive, or he was absent. I was certainly blessed to have a great dad. He loved people. Many of you knew him. He helped anyone who had a need. He worked hard. He loved my mom. He always provided great, a great home for us to live in and uh, provided for us in, in every way. But not everybody had that experience, and I understand that. But God presents Himself in the Scriptures as Father, and we're talking about adoption. We're talking about those who don't have a father finding a father finally and finding that in God. He says in verse 15, just continues on there partway through, but you, you believer, have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And Paul just stacks up two designations for Father from two different languages. He uses the Aramaic Abba and he uses the Greek Father here. And why use both? Why say both of these? And it could be as simple as Jesus used both. If next time you're reading through the Gospels or if you're reading through the Gospels right now, just look for it. Every time Jesus is referring to the Father, he's using both, except for one incident. Every other time he uses both. And I, I don't know if it's, you know, we, we go back to the beginning of Romans and we know that the church in Rome that Paul is writing to had both Jewish believers in it and Gentile believers. We know that Jesus was very interested in making sure that the gospel got out from the Jews to the Gentiles. This wasn't going to be exclusively a Jewish gospel. And so Jesus is using both designations, the Aramaic, because that's what the Jews were speaking. It was their common language and the Greek, because that's what was commonly spoken of throughout the Roman Empire. And so it was probably just a tip of the hat, Abba, Father. I'm going to use the Aramaic and I'm going to use the Greek so that you all know And then beyond that, using both, 
Beyond that, the Jews themselves, if you look into the Old Testament, there's very few references to God as Father. Yahweh, Lord. They had a, a greater sense of the transcendence of God, but not of His proximity, not of, his, of the intimacy that we could have with Him. And the New Testament emphasis, starting with Jesus and through Paul and through the rest of the New Testament, this, this new emphasis on God as Father is communicating to us the intimacy of who He is and the relationship that we can have with Him, the proximity of our God, the blessing that it is to be adopted into a family where He is our Father. And so it, it represented a radical shift, especially in the Jewish mind, of how Christians would relate to God. And Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, and, and that's simply to say that this, child, this, this father-child relationship that we have with God, that just feels right to us. Like when we have it and we start understanding the relationship in that way, it just feels right. We know that this is what we were made for. But back to those who struggle on this point. I read this article from a few years ago in Christianity Today. Um, the article is titled, When It's Hard to Call God Father. We've provided a number of links for you, including the link to this article, but it is behind a paywall. We've, we've provided you some other links. And I want to introduce you to Joe Saxton. And she was, um, she was I'm going to tell a little bit of her story. She was raised without a father. Uh, she had Nigerian parents uh, born in the U.K., and she only rarely had contact with her dad, and, and the first time she ever met him was when she was 12 years old. Joe struggled with the idea of God as father saying, and this is a quote from the article, I became a Christian when I was nine, but the God the father part of my faith seemed irrelevant to me because a father was someone who walked away. So I thought of Jesus as my savior and my friend, but the idea of God as father, it was very painful, she said. We can't go into her entire story. That's why we're providing the links for you in the notes. But she said, the Lord really met me and unlocked years of grief when a speaker I was listening to said that God was my father. And it was almost like I was meeting God for the first time. And it launched a journey of discovery for her into a fresh new understanding of who God was and how uh, she could relate to him. And that may be where, you know, someone in this room someone who's watching on the live stream, that may be exactly where you're at right now. It isn't possible to properly relate to God without seeing Him as Abba Father, but that may be a bit of a hill to climb. But hear this, and I love what Jeff Peabody said about this in another article I read about the fatherhood of God. He just said this, God is insistent and He can reach us no matter what our earthly dads are like. And I hope that brings some hope to somebody. God is insistent and He can reach us no matter what our earthly dads are like. And when you have that intimacy, it provides, it provides what the parent-child relationship should provide. Our earthly parents provide for us as children. As parents, we provide for our children. And just four things I wrote down quickly here. When you, when you have this, this is what we should be getting, and this is what we will get from the Father. We get security. I'm safe with my dad. I'm safe with my dad. We get, we get love no matter what I do. Dad's going to love me. We get provision. Dad's always going to bring home the bacon. And I mean that literally, bacon. Bring home bacon. Because everyone loves bacon. Security, love, provision, and belonging. I know where home is. Where dad is. 
enjoy an intimate relationship with the Father. That's what adoption means. And then finally see this, when I'm adopted into God's family, I eagerly await my glorious inheritance. Verse 17, he just continues, just flows. And he says, and if children, if we see God as our Father and know that we've been adopted into His family, look at this, we have an inheritance. Three times he uses the word heirs here. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, I think it is universal that people would like to be written into someone's will. Am I right? It's universal that we want to be written into the will. Everyone wants a big, fat inheritance check. Am I right? Come on, don't be bashful. You know you want in. And God, by the way, God is super rich. God is super rich, and God has an amazing estate, and He's writing out His will, and He's looking for heirs to write into His will. I got to thinking about this, and I, again, I went back to the book of Revelation, and Revelation 21, you have this description of the city that He's building, the New Jerusalem, and God is so uber rich and has so much at His disposal that in His city, the walls are being made of gold, and the streets are being paved with gold. Now, something you may or may not know, uh, Cheryl and I had the occasion a few years ago to, to visit the Canadian Mint in Ottawa. And when you go there, they show you how um, they press the coins and make all the, the coinage. And other countries um, are so impressed with what Canada does that there are many, many, many other countries in the world that get us to make their coins for them. Okay? And, and we make gold that's so pure that we're able to stamp our gold coins with a 9999 purity on it, and almost no one achieves that level of purity of gold. Canada's known around the world for the purity of our gold. The thing is that when I went to the mint and I actually held a gold bar in my hand and I, and I saw some of the coins, the thing is about Canadian gold, as pure as it is, you can't see through it. It's not transparent. But Revelation 21 tells us, you know where I'm going with this? Revelation 21 tells us that the gold that God uses is so pure, it's transparent. It's like glass. So God's building this new Jerusalem out of gold that you can see through. It's so pure. And he's just, he has so much of it, he's just paving the streets with it. That's how much. Do you not want to be in his will? We want to be heirs of what God is providing for us. And we are written in if we're followers of Christ. We're an heir, verse 17 continues. We are an heir. Provide it. Provide it. Here's the condition. Provide it, we suffer with Him. Provide it. Galatians 2.20, provide it, we are crucified with Christ. Or to stick with Romans, Romans 6, provide it, we are buried with Him in the likeness of His death. Provide it, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him, to get the inheritance, to have the glory of God all around us. So the two parts are there. First, the we suffer part, that's the now. As we work it all out with Jesus and we struggle with living the gospel, living out the gospel in this sin-sickened world, as we struggle against our own flesh fighting us every step of the way, we suffer with Christ to live these holy lives. 
But then secondly, we will be glorified with Jesus. The other part's the now, but this is the not yet. This is what's coming. When we see Him, when we pass from this life to the next, or when He breaks through the clouds to take us to be with Himself. I think it's helpful and encouraging to think about eternity, to think about heaven, to think about the awaiting glory, to think about the inheritance that awaits us. I I believe that having our minds as Christians set on the end goal is going to help us navigate living for Christ here and now. As we await the glorious inheritance, we keep everything in its proper perspective. We're going to get into a message on hope next week. The gospel is hope as we work in the next few verses of chapter 8. It's going to help us keep it in perspective. The last few messages drive us to this understanding of our life, of sin, of the struggle, of the Spirit's help, and now of belonging and adoption. We'll hear what the Word is saying to us. If we'll hear what the Word is saying to us, we'll gain something truly helpful in our efforts to live for Christ while we remain in the flesh. Martin Luther said this, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam with glory. That's the inheritance. That's what we're waiting for. But all is being purified. Knowing how hard life can be, the complications that have been added in the last 12 months, what a blessing it is to have the assurance that we're part of God's family, that we've been adopted by Him, that we have a Father who loves us unconditionally. And nothing, nothing is ever going to change that. That's awesome, don't you think? Let me pray for us. Father, you have shown um, your incredible kindness toward us again and again and again. The sending of your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to assume the full cost of all of our sins, sins that we haven't even contemplated or committed yet and having that assurance and being welcomed into your family is a truth that God I pray you would root that deep inside of us and that we would be changed God this last year has been so challenging for so many for some the obvious trial but for many layer upon layer of challenge and trial and difficulties And God, I pray that each one of us would remember who we are. Remember who you are. 
and that you would continue to carry us through this season. And Father, for those who remain under the fear of judgment, God, I pray that they would surrender and they would accept your certificate of adoption. And they would enter into your family as sons and daughters, as our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's been precious to us. We thank you and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.